Hey everybody and welcome back to I Just Want to Talk About the Bible. If this is your first time joining us, then let me just welcome you and say that I'm very glad that you're here. My name is Christian Keeter and I live in the southeast of the United States of America with my amazing, beautiful, godly wife Lacey and our two wonderful daughters, Felicity and Serenity. So we are going to begin today by jumping right into an account from the life of Jesus that's recorded in John chapter 2. And we are not going to try to do an exhaustive study on this passage or anything like that today, although that would certainly be a good and uh, helpful thing to do. But rather, I hope to draw out just one principle in particular out of this passage that will be an encouragement and a help to you in your walk with the Lord. And so, like I said, this is John chapter 2. This is the wedding at Cana where Jesus turns water to wine. Um, So let's just begin by reading through the passage. This is John 2, 1 through 11, and then then we'll talk about it. So it says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And that's the end of the passage. So just to do a little recap and preliminary observations about this passage, uh, Jesus and his disciples and Mary are invited to this wedding and they're there and the wedding runs out of wine, which you can just tell just by reading this passage, even just at a surface level, that this is a huge social faux pas. Then Mary uh, brings this to Jesus and Jesus's response in verse four is, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And so in English, that can sound a bit negative, um, how he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? And so I want to read um, a quote from a commentary that I think is helpful about this point. It says, and I quote, in English, this sounds harsh, but it was a Hebrew, a Hebrew idiom, a title of respect. And then it, it cites John 4, 21, John 8, 10, John 19, 26, and John 20, 15. And in fact, I want to read John 19, 26 really quickly just as a cross-reference because I think it really drives this home. And so this is when um, this is when Jesus is on the cross. This is when he's crucified and um, he's up on the cross. And in, let's see here, verse 26 of 19, It says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And that was John 19, 26 through 27. And so just based on that cross-reference alone, you can see that this isn't a berating or disrespectful or insulting term or anything like that. And so I just wanted to uh, share that because, again, you know, in English, it can sound a certain way that was not kind of how it was originally meant. And so I just didn't want uh, the Lord's tone to be misunderstood by, you know, modern hearers. So coming back to John chapter 2. 
we see that there are these six stone jars that are there. Um, it says in John 2, 6, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And so these things are big, 20 or 30 gallons. This, these are these hold a lot of water. And Jesus said to the, like, is, he told the servants, he told them to fill the jars with water. And the servants did so. Um, what's not necessarily explicitly clear from the passage is when the water became wine. Um, in verses eight and nine, it says, and he said to them, uh, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And then he says to the bridegroom what he says about how it's better than the stuff that they had had prior. And, uh, so it's, I mean, was it still water when the servants drew it out and it became wine as they were walking, you know, was it, you know, did it become wine as they were passing it into the uh, the the um, master of the feast's hands? Was it did it already did it already become wine when it was still in the stone jars? I mean, we don't know. I mean, that's not something we that's not something we know. But there is just one thing I want to draw out really quickly, and it's not the 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 main point that I'm getting to or the principle that I'm trying to highlight is the main focus of this episode. But I just can't skip over this. I mean, they had run out of wine. They didn't, they didn't need water. They needed wine. And yet Jesus is telling them to fill the stone jars up with water. And so, you know, this, the command didn't seem to make sense. I mean, obviously the Lord knew what he's going to do. I mean, for those of us who are sitting here reading the Bible, we can just kind of read. We're familiar with the passage. We can just read down. We know how it's going to go. But we don't pause to kind of like experience it as it's unfolding. And so, I mean, who knows what the people were thinking or feeling through this process. And so my point is just this, and this could be a whole episode in and of itself. We just need to obey even when it doesn't make sense. We don't know what the Lord is going to do. We don't, you know, we can't lean on our limited understanding. And even if something that the Lord is telling us to do doesn't necessarily make sense from our limited perspective, you know, this is where trust comes in, trust and obey. We just need to trust and obey because you see the Lord is not limited by our limited perspective. He can do and he does do things that we just could not have foreseen, just like here turning water into wine, the to- like totally unexpected. And so I did just want to highlight that, just the importance of obeying even when it doesn't make sense. And, you know, you'll see, um, you'll see that principle play out in, in various passages in scripture in, in various, um, uh, you know, just various of the miracles. I mean, we could talk about how, um, you know, Peter had been fishing all night and, you know, they're coming in after not catching anything. And then Jesus tells Peter to cast the net over on the side and, Peter basically says, you know, we've been toiling all night, but okay. And then there's this miraculously huge catch of fish. Or we could talk about the 10 lepers um, that came to Jesus. And Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest. And, you know, the priest could not heal. The priest could only diagnose. And as they went, as they obeyed Jesus's command, they were healed. And so those are just a couple of examples that, you know, just pop, you know, right off the top of my head. But this, these are just some places where we see it's like, okay, even if the command doesn't make sense to us, just trust and obey. The Lord can just can completely blow our minds. And we could we could continue to talk about that. Like I said, that could be its own episode. But let's get back to John chapter 2 and uh, just continue moving through the passage here. And so the the master of the feast, uh, you know, after tasting this wine, the, the, the water that Jesus turned into wine, he says to the bridegroom, he says, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. And so his, you know, the thinking is, okay, you give the good stuff first. Then as the evening progresses, then you give the, uh, 
the I say evening as the the day whatever time of day this was progresses, then you give the uh, the the not so good stuff. But he says, but you save the the best stuff for here. And just as a side note, you know what what the Lord does is always going to be better than what we can do in our own power. Even the the best wine that you know this couple had that they offered at the beginning of the ceremony, you know, compared to the wine that Jesus made. And so what the Lord does is always going to be better than what we can do in our own power, which is just a reminder that we need to be seeking him and his help and his power. And then here in verse 11, it says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So what is the thing that I want us to see today? What is the principle kind of, you know, uh, in this passage that's going to be the focus of our conversation? And it's something, I think it's something pretty simple. And it's, it's this. So Jesus had these guys fill up the stone jars with water. But let me ask you this. Could Jesus, I mean, he, he turns water into wine. I mean, could he have just said, be filled with wine? Right, he wouldn't even need to have said it, of course. He could have just done it. And like, why why have you know the water in there at all? Like, why why was that even even necessary? Because he could have. He could have easily just done it, just created wine out of absolutely nothing, not turning water to wine, just filling up the stone jars with it. And, you know, I I don't want to you know, try to say that I just exhaustively say this is, these are all the reasons that he did it that way. No, I'm not, I'm not so foolish just to try to make a claim like that, but there is something that stands out to me about this. The servants, the people had a responsibility in this process. And then the Lord had a responsibility or to word it a different way. The servants did what they could do. And then the Lord did what only he could do. Now, the servants were obeying the command of God, but this is very, very important. The servants did what they could do, and the Lord did what only he could do. This is a very important principle, and it is at work in our relationship with the Lord every day. We have a role to play, and the Lord has a role to play. But before moving on into that even further, let me just give you another example from the Gospel according to John, another uh, probably well-known passage from John chapter 11. And we won't spend as much time in John 11 as we just did in John 2. But I just want to do it. There's another passage here that I just want to, where I want to highlight this same sort of thing where we see um, people doing what they can do and then God doing what only he can do. So John chapter 11, this is recording, or this is recording the, um, the, how Lazarus died. Um, Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. And uh, Jesus comes, and I, again, we're going to, he's, we're going to, skate across the surface really here not get into too many details because again there's just one thing i want to see here and so you know jesus comes and um you know lazarus has died he's been in the tomb for four days uh, jesus has this conversation with martha and uh this is the famous passage where uh jesus weeps and so uh jesus wept there you go john eleven thirty five. if you can if you can say jesus wept you just memorized the scripture today so good for you um so then, um, beginning in verse 38, John eleven thirty eight and following, it says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and the stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So that was John eleven thirty eight through 44. And if you, I don't know, you might've picked up on this um, along the way, but notice that Jesus did something in this passage, but then just kind of, then people just, you know, just the other people in this scenario um, did things as well. So what did Jesus do? Well, he raised Lazarus from the dead. He said, he's the one who said, Lazarus, come out. He is the one who had the authority, the power to raise him from the dead. He was the only one who could do that. He did what only he could do. And however, who rolled away the stone? Well, let's, let's look at it again. Um, verse 41, so they took away the stone. Earlier in that passage, Jesus said in verse 39, take away the stone. So they, the others, took away the stone. And then who unbound Lazarus? There in verse 44, um, it says at the end of the passage, Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So my question is, once again, could Jesus have done those things? Well, of course he could. I mean, Jesus, you know, in other passages, and I'm paraphrasing here, talks about how that if we have, you know, faith the size of a must, faith the size of a mustard seed, we could say to a mountain, be uprooted and thrown into, you know, the sea, and it would happen. I mean, surely Jesus could have said, "Stone, be moved," and it would have happened. You know, I mean, remember, like he he calmed a storm. He just spoke to a storm and calmed it. Like he could have moved this stone. And what about you know the the unbinding of Lazarus? Could he not have just said, you know, be unbound? And again, he wouldn't even need to have said this. Of course he could have done this. Of course he could have done those things. But the point is, once again, this is just another place that we see Jesus did what only Jesus can do, and others did what they could do. So likewise, in our relationship with the Lord, we have a responsibility, we have things that we can do, and then there's things that only God can do. And we need to be diligent to do the things that we can do, and then, you know, be diligent to rely on God to do the things that only he can do. Whenever we get these things mixed up, it's going to cause problems. Whenever we place our responsibility on God, or whenever we try to take God's responsibility on us, it just gets messy. It's just not, um, it just doesn't work. And so let me just kind of hopefully make this kind of practical with a few examples. So let's begin with the example of sharing the gospel, of telling others about Jesus, because I think it will very simply and easily kind of communicate the point here. So in Matthew 28, verses um, 18 through 20, this is, um, before I read it, this is after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and shortly before his ascension, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, then of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So part of what it means to obey that passage of scripture is going to be to, to share the gospel, right? I mean, that's that's just kind of readily obvious, and, and obviously there's plenty of other passages we could go to. I just chose Matthew 28 to make this point. And so it's it's our responsibility to tell other people about Jesus, and if you read through the book of Acts, for example, you're going to see this all over the place where you have people, you know, sharing the gospel. I mean, Peter in Acts 2 preaches this sermon and it's right after the Holy Spirit comes and then all these people are cut to the heart and, you know, they, they're, they, they're convicted and they repent and, you know, 3,000 people are saved and baptized that day. And so, and yes, it's, it's our responsibility to share the gospel. However, 
In John 6, 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so, you know, we have these two passages of Scripture, and I, and again, we could there's plenty more passages we could cite in this conversation. I'm just using this as a very simple example. And so in this process of evangelism, we have a part to play, and God has a part to play. And um, anytime we expect God to do our part or... If, you know, we try to do God's part, things are going to get mixed up. And so it's our responsibility to tell people the gospel. It's our responsibility to do things like share our testimony, um, to try to, you know, tell others about the good news of Jesus. But the Lord is the only one that can speak to someone's heart and open their eyes. And that's not to say that, you know, people can't still continue to harden their hearts and resist um, because they can. Uh, you know, and, and unfortunately, uh, many do. But my point is just that uh, we have a part to play, and the Lord has a part to play, and we need to know what they are. And they often, I mean, they they normally go together in tandem. You know, the Lord will um, work through someone sharing the gospel to speak to someone's heart. You know, this is how it is. This is the, the Lord um, works through people. He would he would send prophets, you know, he could, you know, because the Lord can do whatever he wants. Of course, he could, you know, speak directly to an individual, but he would send a prophet to go speak to the people on his behalf. You think about, you know, Jonah going to uh, Nineveh or many other, you know, uh, any other sort of things. Or even just think about, um, you know, if you go to church on Sunday and you hear a sermon and it really resonates with your heart, the Lord worked through the pastor to speak to your heart, where it's like the Lord did not need the pastor. Obviously, the Lord doesn't need anything. But, you know, the pastor had a part to play. He he prayed, he sought the Lord, he prepared the message, and he showed up and gave it. And But then the Lord was the source of the power. He did what he could do. He, you know, studied and, uh, and prayed and meditated on the scriptures and delivered the message. But then God did what only God can do, which is speak to someone's heart and, and um, you know, just really open their eyes to, to some biblical truth. There's just a couple of examples. Let's use the example of meditating on the scriptures. It's our responsibility to store the scriptures up in our hearts. Um, Psalm 1 uh, says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither in all that he does, he prospers. That was Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3. And so, well, whose who's responsibility is it to meditate on the Scripture? Well, it's our responsibility to meditate on the Scripture, and it says day and night. I mean, that's something that we have the ability to do. And, and just by the way, meditating on the Scripture is more than just m- memorizing it. Meditating on the Scripture is going to be, you know, thinking about it consistently, rolling it over in our minds, praying through it, seeking to really understand it, you know, asking questions like, well, you know, why did the Lord choose to use this word, and and what does this mean, and how does it look like for me to apply this? And as we do that, the Holy Spirit will begin to, you know, speak to us very, you know, clearly through the Scriptures, and He doesn't need us to do that in order to speak to us. He can speak however He wants, of course. However, that's us doing our part of meditating on the Scriptures. And then he will do his part where he speaks through it. And it's in those moments that the um, the scriptures become more than just words on a page. They It's it's almost like they get branded on our hearts. Um, Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so look, it's our responsibility to store up his word in us, isn't it? However, 
he is the one who will take it and make it real to us. It is objectively real. He'll take it and make it real to us in, in powerful ways, life-transforming ways. And, uh, and you know, in fact, we have an entire episode dedicated to that. It's episode seven of this podcast entitled Meditating on the Scriptures, part one. Um, we talk about something extremely important in that. And so if you haven't listened to that episode, I would encourage you to do so. But my point is this is just another example of... Um, of this. It's like, it's our responsibility to get into the word of God. It's our responsibility to, um, internalize the word of God by, you know, uh, to meditate on it day and night and to, uh, to, to memorize it so that we can meditate on it and, uh, and then seek to apply it. But it, uh, but then the Holy Spirit is the one who really takes it and, um, and just makes it real in a new way to us where it's just more than just words on a page. And we've had this experience. It's like when we say things like, I read that passage like a hundred times, but then it finally clicked for me. That process of it clicking is exactly what we're talking about here. Um, and this is just an example. I mean, but let me just, let me flip over here to Second Timothy really quickly. Okay, Second Timothy 2.7 says, Paul is of course writing to Timothy. He says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So it was Timothy's responsibility to think over what Paul had said to him, but then the Lord was the one who was going to give him understanding in it all, in everything. And so that's just, I mean, that verse kind of concisely describes what we're talking about. So we've looked at the examples of evangelism, of like when the pastor delivers a message, we've looked at the topic of, you know, um, meditating on the scriptures, and then we can even just talk about the topic of prayer. You know, it's our responsibility to seek the Lord. It's his, uh, in fact, let me, I got some, got a couple of scriptures right here. Uh, Psalm 105 verse 4 says, seek the Lord in his strength, seek his presence continually. Psalm 27, 6 says, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek? Um, let's see. Psalm 119, 10 with my whole heart. I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. And then Jeremiah 29, 13, Jeremiah here, this is, uh, the context of this is he is writing a letter to some Jews who are in exile. Um, but the uh, the verse says, "You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart." And so, it's our responsibility to seek the Lord, to to seek Him in prayer, to to seek His presence. But we can't force Him to show up in some way. We can't, you know, force Him to do anything. Nevertheless, it's our responsibility to seek Him, and then He, you know, is found by us. He He shows up. Um, in fact, Hebrews chapter 11 is, um, is a good cross-reference here. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And then I guess, you know, I'm right here. Uh, James, James 4 uh, verse 8 says, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's the first part of verse 8. And so, I mean, I just say all that to say it's like, these are all just different facets of our lives where we have a part to play and God has a part to play. Even when we're praying for things, it's like, you know, I mean, Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. You know, the Lord is the one who answers prayers and yet we still need to pray and seek him and ask, you know? And so I just want to say, it's like the point of this is, um, we just need to know our parts. We need to know what it looks like to fill up the stone jars with water. And so I want this to be your paradigm. So whenever you open your Bible, whenever you sit down with the Lord, whenever you say, you know, whenever you, when you're praying, you're, you're seeking to spend time in his presence, 
um, you're, you know, you're worshiping the Lord, you are, um, you know, uh, sitting down to meditate on the scriptures, you, it's, the prayer can be, Lord, I'm filling up these stone jars with water, and I ask you to turn them into wine. I'm doing my part, Lord. Please show up in power. Please show up in power. And, and, you, and, and, and so I just thought that was a very helpful way to, to think about this, where it's like, Lord, I'm, I'm doing what I can do, and God, I ask you to do what only you can do. And this is going to require time and effort. It's going to require intent and being deliberate. Um, back in John chapter 2, whenever Jesus told the servants to fill the stone jars with water, it says uh, in verse 7, and they filled them up to the brim. Remember, these were six stone jars, 20 to 30 gallons each. That required time and effort. If we want to encounter the Lord, if we really want to, then it's going to require time and effort and, uh, and focus and, and solitude and silence in seeking him. And we live in a world of distractions, and so that can be very difficult to do, and it will never happen on accident. And sometimes it'll take a lot of seeking, and the Lord will, you know, develop us and, and, and change us and transform us through that process. But we can just hold on to, you know, statements like James 4, 8, where it says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. So I just want to give you a, a paradigm to look at um, the, the spiritual things you do, like prayer and meditating on the scriptures and spending time in solitude seeking the Lord. It's so you're filling up the stone jars with water. You're, you're rolling away the stone in front of the tomb at Lazarus, asking God to do what only he can do. So I hope this is encouraging to you and um, that it uh, is just empowering. And I hope that it also develops in you a sense of dependence. Because, like I said, we might realize through this process, oh, I've been trying to turn water into wine instead of just filling up the stone jars with water and then asking Jesus to take care of the rest and to, um, to do what only he can do. So hope this was encouraging and hope this was helpful. So in closing, I just want to remind you guys that I Just Want to Talk About the Bible is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. So any and all gifts given are tax deductible. And so instructions on how to give to the nonprofit can be found in the episode description, the episode show notes. Um, it's pretty clear down there in the footer. So thanks so much to all of you who have given. And God bless you guys. Until next time.